second Corinthians chapter um, two, starting at verse 12, and then we'll go all the way to um, verse 11. Uh, you know, the first part of this passage actually was uh, originally supposed to be tied to last week, but then um, some of you know, uh, Pastor Brent, Ben from City Grace and I, we, we just like meet every week to kind of discuss the passage and sermon bounce ideas off each other. So kind of a collaborative way to uh, prepare sermons. And uh, I don't know, we felt thematically, it was hard to fit that into last week. So <clears throat> we're including it in this week. And that's why it's a little bit long today. But nevertheless, this is a word of the Lord. Let me read it for us. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To, other, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is a confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. This is a word of the Lord. All right, let me, uh, let me start us off with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you just for your word that comes to us, and uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be uh, with all of us uh, in our uh, respective homes. And, uh, you know, we read about the Spirit today and uh, the ministry of the Spirit, how it gives life. So we pray, God, that your word, your gospel truth, and your Spirit uh, really activates us to feel uh, alive uh, inwardly, spiritually, um, uh, even as we battle uh, as Paul would say later, um, um, you know, uh, outward brokenness and decay, uh, but to know that inwardly you're renewing us day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> so we are going through a series on first uh, on Second Corinthians, and uh, we're going to find that this letter has a lot to say about how we relate to weakness. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to actually preach on this letter. Uh, I wanted to reflect on how we relate to weakness, because I suspect that uh, the last couple of years, um, these pandemic years, has probably made us feel 
uh, week. And there are two ways to respond to that, I think, or at least two ways to respond to that. Uh, I think we can maybe dive deeper into despair or we can, um, I don't know, maybe numb ourselves and kind of shut, shut out this, this sense of uh, feeling so weak uh, as a way to cope, or uh, we can really embrace our weakness. And I think what this letter encourages us to do is really do the latter because, you know, in a paradoxical way, that's, that's how the gospel works and that's how the kingdom of God works. It flips things upside down where embracing our weakness will actually connect us to great power. And of course, not power that comes from within ourselves, but uh, ultimately the power of God. Now, by the way, we, we might assume that maybe the wider world uh, doesn't recognize or see or embrace this kind of paradox, but I actually think um, you see hints of it uh, everywhere. Uh, if you're a fan of you know, superhero movies, if you've been keeping up with some of the Marvel movies that have come out in the last couple of years, uh, you start to realize a lot of these characters, uh, they embody this paradox to a certain degree because they have to embrace their weakness over their uh, quote unquote strength and their superpowers in order to really become stronger superheroes. So if you remember, you know, Captain America, he started off as like this weak, puny little kid, and he wasn't even allowed to, uh, to join the army on account of his many physical defects, but that weakness gave him the character and the heart to be a better Captain America when he was actually given those superpowers. Or Spider-Man, uh, you know, the, the third Spider-Man, the new one, the Tom Holland one, but the first movie, uh, he doesn't figure out how to uh, really be Spider-Man until uh, <clears throat> the suit that he has is, is taken away from Tony Stark. And that's actually when he, uh, you see in the, in the movie narrative where he discovers how to actually be a superhero or a hero. So even though their storylines don't exactly correspond to what Paul is saying here, you do, I think, see hints and shadows of uh, some of those themes, even in uh, our contemporary modern narratives and, and superhero films. And I'm sure you can discover many examples like that uh, elsewhere. So thus far, we have been talking a great deal about uh, the conflict that Paul is having with the Corinthians and how some of these Corinthians are attacking his apostolic ministry. And we've seen how Paul begins to defend that ministry, uh, but it's a very fine line because he, he's not defending his ministry for his own sake or his own name. And on the surface, we could say that uh, 2 Corinthians is a letter that is giving us a, a perspective of ministry. But I think if we reflect a little bit deeper, we could say 2 Corinthians is actually showing us the implications of the gospel and how uh, its message centers on a crucified Messiah. And I know I've been focusing on weakness, which is what uh, we'll continue to focus on. But by implication, there are also implications for how we ought to relate to power. And you might automatically think that power is a bad thing, but uh, that, that's not it either. Power is not uh, necessarily a bad or evil thing. I think power is actually good, but our understanding of true power becomes distorted because of the way we access power. Uh, <clears throat> How do we really access true power? Well, we have to access God's power. And according to uh, 2 Corinthians, what we'll see is the way we access it is going to be by way of weakness. So 2 Corinthians shows us how the cross flips our understanding of weakness and power and strength. And that if we want to access real, true, uh, good, healthy kind of power, we have to ultimately embrace our weakness. Or to put it another way, it's when we embrace our weakness then we will find God and he will show us his true power and his true strength. 
that will uphold us and form us and transform us. So Paul, he's showing the Corinthians how this dynamic really works itself out in his apostolic ministry, uh, in his defense, uh, which is why I say he's not defending his ministry for his own sake, but um, in a way he's teaching them, this is how uh, a crucified life or a crucified ministry uh, works. This is why what you see on the surface is really consistent with the paradox and the dynamics of the gospel and a crucified Messiah. And so we get an example of this in our passage, starting in verse 14. And Paul, he gives thanks to God because he says that in Christ, God always leads him and his colleagues in this triumphal procession. Let me warn you, <clears throat> I'm going to get a little bit uh, geeky and a little bit grammatical here, but uh, I think it makes the point. So uh, that phrase leads in a triumphal procession. You know, in the Greek, it's actually one word. And uh, if you read all the commentaries, people are kind of puzzled by this word and how Paul is using it. Because when you use this verb in a certain way, uh, more specifically, when you use it in a way where it doesn't have a direct object, then it means to celebrate a victory by, by means of triumph. And so, for example, after a team wins a, a sports championship, what they'll often do is they'll have a parade in their city and they'll celebrate the victory. And that's kind of what interpreters are expecting Paul to say here when he gives thanks to God. But the way he says it doesn't quite match up with uh, the way this word is typically used in its grammatical construction, because when this word is used in another way, when there's a direct object, which there is here, uh, that direct object becomes the object of triumph. So uh, some translations will actually translate verse 14 like this. But thanks be to God who continually leads us about captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Okay, captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So now you have to, you want to imagine what if uh, at this victory parade, the losing team actually shows up at this victory parade and having uh, each of the players who are on the losing team walk in the parade, kind of like with their heads down while everybody around them, while the victors are celebrating uh, their own victory. That's kind of how Paul is presenting himself. And that's the reason why Paul is giving thanks to God. And so naturally, interpreters of the Bible are like, what? Well, why would Paul use this metaphor in such a way? But I do think it speaks to the paradoxical nature of the Christian life, because sometimes what you see on the surface is not really what is going on spiritually. Sometimes what looks like weakness, what looks like defeat, what looks like folly, sometimes it's really strength and sometimes it's really victory and sometimes it's really wisdom. And that's Paul's point. He wants the Corinthians to be shaped by a cross-shaped perspective. That is not only how Paul defends his ministry, but it's also why he is defending his ministry. He is preaching a gospel. He is preaching a message where it's a crucified Christ that achieves salvation and life and victory through paradoxical means, through defeat, through death, and through loss. And therefore, what they perceive through their eyes of the flesh to be power needs to be reoriented to perceive things through the eyes of the spirit. What they perceive to be weakness and invalidation, their perspective needs to be reoriented around the cross, and they need to see through the eyes of the Spirit, including how they would validate Paul himself and his ministry. And so in verse 17, Paul is saying to them, he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And you can see kind of the, um, the way Paul is defending 
his ministry and his co-laborers ministry uh, of preaching the gospel. Uh, he is not doing it for a self gain. He is not doing it for insincere motives, but he is doing it with great sincerity. And not only that, he is emphasizing that he has been commissioned by God to do so. And so therefore, if they continue to compare Paul's ministry of suffering and loss and defeat to these, who, what he will call super apostles in a sarcastic way later, who come with things like status and influence and these letters of recommendation, then they might not only validate the wrong kind of ministry, but they will suffer spiritually because they will experience a lesser glory than the glory that is available to them in this new covenant. And after Paul tells them that he has been commissioned by God, he wants to make sure they don't receive that as though Paul is saying, I'm commending myself. So in other words, he's not saying, I've been commissioned by God, and therefore I am special. Therefore, my ministry is validated. That's not really the sense of what Paul is trying to say. No, that, that's actually the approach of these other itinerant uh, teachers and preachers and false apostles who came with letters of recommendation to, to validate themselves. Paul is actually saying, look, we don't need these letters of recommendation because our ministry is ultimately not validated by these letters of recommendation or others telling us how great we are. No, at the end of the day, you, Corinthians, you yourselves are our letters of recommendation. Why? Because the spirit of God is at work in you and the spirit in you is ultimately what is going to validate our ministry because that has nothing to do with our own sufficiency. Rather, what it has to do with is the spirit of God that is at work in your hearts and giving you life. It has to do with you hearing the true gospel and the spirit applying that gospel to your hearts. And, you know, it's kind of insulting that the Corinthians would ask Paul, their spiritual father, for a letter of recommendation, even at this point, to validate his ministry. But at the end of the day, no letter, no credential would serve to validate him because what he's saying is, look, I am not sufficient in and of myself to claim that I have done anything to you at all. I want to reflect uh, for a moment, though, on this uh, concept, this notion of validation for uh, a brief moment, because I want to I want to draw an important principle from what Paul is saying here. Uh, now, in our um, in our context, in our world, in the life that we live, being validated is pretty important. Uh, just as it was in the ancient world. So when you apply for a new job, you, know, you submit your resume, maybe you submit some references, and these things are supposed to validate that you're somebody that is worthy of being hired. Uh, if you've worked for a, a certain company, maybe a very important company that has a very high reputation, uh, then maybe your association with them validates you in the eyes of others because the thinking goes, well, if this great company is going to hire you, then you must be good, right? So even in our personal lives, we draw validation, uh, not just for our careers, but even we draw validation from our marital status. Or if you're married and if you have kids, maybe you draw validation from how your kids turn out or things of that nature. And so that means a lot of our validation is becomes rooted in things like, a, like our accomplishments or even our abilities. But according to verse six, Paul would classify that kind of validation uh, I'm, I'm skipping a few logical steps, but uh, Paul would probably classify that kind of validation under this old covenant system, which he refers to as the letter. And he says the kind of validation that comes for the letter and not of the spirit is a problem because the letter kills, whereas the spirit gives life. 
And, you know, there's more, uh, I, I should probably say on that, but I, I want to stay on this theme for uh, validation for a bit. And it might seem a little bit extreme to some to say that, you know, the kind of uh, validation that is rooted in our accomplishments and our abilities kills, uh, because that seems like the obvious place to find validation for most people uh, in the world. But that's what Paul is saying here. So uh, let's reflect on why he would say that. Uh, you know, Pastor John, <clears throat> uh, he just published a, a new book. I have it here if you're interested in reading it. It's called On Generosity. And uh, he has this chapter in that book where he talks about meritocracy. And he, he begins by uh he starts off by saying, like, Americans are, are unique in terms of uh, our perspective in the world because we tend to look at the world through a meritocratic lens. So, for example, 77% of Americans believe that there's a connection between hard work and success. But if you compare it to other countries like Japan and France, the majority of people don't see a connection between hard work and success. Uh, uh, some people in the world or some, some countries in the world would say, you know, you could work as hard as possible, uh, but still not yield success. There's not necessarily a direct correlation. So in that chapter, uh, what Pastor John does, he quotes this other book um, by Michael Sandel, oh, which I also have here, right? He's a, he's a political philosopher uh, who teaches at Harvard. You see what I did there? I just validated Michael Sandel by telling you he teaches from Harvard, right? We can't escape it. Uh, but he wrote a book uh, called The Tyranny of Merit. And, you know, Pastor John takes that book, some of the ideas of, the, of that book and reflects on merit. And he basically argues, you know, we don't, are, we don't live in a true meritocracy. And there's a lot of other factors that go into our success or failure. So uh, he'll say something like this, you know, the problem with thinking that we live in a meritocracy can really have detrimental effects. If you take the example of like the college admissions process, uh, Michael Sandel says, you know, the years of strenuous effort demanded of applicants to elite universities almost forces them to believe that their success is their own doing and that if they fall short, they have no one to blame but themselves. But, you know, in the college admissions process, the reality is uh, you, your hard work may mean you qualify to, at a certain level to be accepted in an elite school. But there are a ton of other factors that are beyond your control that also that contribute to the decision uh, as to whether you get admitted to that particular elite college. So it could be whether your parents went to the school, whether they donated money to the school. It could be based on your financial circumstances and your ability to pay for the school. It can be based on your demographic, your, your race, your gender, um, like all sorts of things that you don't really have control over. Uh, but what Sandel is saying is like uh, a student who believes that it is completely based on merit and not any of these factors that are beyond their control, they. Um, they are weighed down by their own success or their own failure uh, to the point where it can crush them if they don't get in, because there's no other way to interpret that than saying, I'm a failure, right? I didn't get in because I am not good enough. And what Michael Sandel is saying is, you know, that sense of falling short uh, can crush a person if you believe everything is purely based on merit uh, and your success or your failures fall entirely on you. I think that's at least part of the dynamic that Paul is talking about when he says the letter kills. You know, he starts to mix metaphors a little bit when he talks about how they are a letter written not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Uh, he's drawing from imagery of the Old Testament, but he's anticipating a comparison uh, that he's going to make between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
Because under the old covenant system, God's people, they were given the law. And they were expected to be perfectly obedient to that law without really having the ability to be perfectly obedient to that law on account of the reality of sin. And, uh, you know, maybe we could say that the Pharisaical type believed in a kind of meritocracy where such obedience was possible, which led them towards self-righteousness with respect to themselves and maybe a condemning attitude with respect to others who didn't follow the law. Now, that's not to say that the law or the old covenant is bad or evil, because you read other letters, especially uh, the letter to the Romans, and Paul's pretty careful to make the point uh, that the law is not bad because, you know, he knows people can misinterpret what he's saying. He's not saying that the law is bad or the old covenant was bad, but the reason why it kills is because we aren't able to fulfill it on account of our sin. And if we're not able to fulfill it, then it becomes a ministry of condemnation, as Paul would say in verse 9 of our passage today. But Paul's not a minister of the Old old Covenant, and therefore his ministry is not a ministry of death and condemnation. In verse 6, Paul says he is a minister of a new covenant, and that his sufficiency to be a minister of the new covenant does not come from the letter, but it comes from the Spirit. In other words, Paul's not claiming anything meritorious about his apostolic ministry. He says it explicitly, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And with respect to the new covenant, God actually promised he would make a new covenant through some of the Old Testament Hebrew prophets. And you read some of what God promised in places like Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36. Uh, And, you know, by the way, I didn't make this connection last week, but there's a place in Jeremiah 31 where God says, I will remember your sins no more. And uh, if you uh, heard the sermon last week, and if you remember it, uh, you know, I was talking about how Paul seems to have chosen to forget the offense that was against him. And that part of forgiveness means to forget the offense. And uh, not in a sense of like you, you forget it happened from a memory perspective, but in the sense that you no longer choose to view that person through that lens of their offense or their sin. And perhaps Paul does that for the Corinthians because that's a characteristic of the new covenant. God says, I will remember your sins no more. Let me just read a small portion uh, from Ezekiel 36 and kind of give you a sense of what God promises in the new covenant. And God says through Ezekiel, um, this is chapter 36, starting at verse 26. And he says this, and I will give you a new heart And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, if if you were paying attention to uh, when I read the the entire passage before, I think you'll see, you can hear the connections that Paul is making with this text and with respect to uh, what we read in Ezekiel um, 36 regarding uh, the new covenant. Uh, You can hear the connections of the heart and of the spirit that God would give us, that indwells us. Under this new covenant, God will essentially recreate us into something new by giving us this new heart. He will also breathe new life into us by way of his spirit, and that will have a profound impact upon us. Uh, And that last phrase um, alludes to one kind of impact that God would have on us. God says something very interesting. It says he will cause us to walk in his statutes 
and be careful to obey his rules. And um, you know, I think it's even clearer in the Hebrew, but you can even hear it in the English. So therefore, even our ability to obey requires God's divine intervention through this giving of a new heart and his indwelling spirit. Now, when Jesus came into the world, he comes and he mediates this new covenant for us. Now, how does he do that? He does it through the cross. There's a place in the book of Hebrews that talks about how Jesus is a better high priest because he mediates a better covenant through his blood. Under the old covenant, priests had to present a sacrifice to atone for sins over and over again. Why? Because God's people would continually fail to obey the terms of the old covenant. You see, when Jesus comes, he comes as a better high priest who offers a better sacrifice to atone for all of our sin. Jesus offers his own blood as a sacrifice for us so that we might enter into a new kind of relationship with God under the new covenant. And, you know, that's, um, there will come a time pretty soon where we will uh, partake uh, in the Lord's table again together. Uh, I think originally it was supposed to be the last Sunday of the month. Um, but hopefully very soon we'll, we will be able to partake in that. And if you recall, when we hear the words of the institution, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. When we partake in that cup, we remember that his shed blood has given us a new covenant that comes with better promises. We're promised the forgiveness of sins. We're promised a new heart made clean. We are promised an eternal relationship where God is our God and we are his people. These are promises you find in Jeremiah 31. But now let's bring it back to Paul. Paul here is saying he is a minister of this covenant. He is a minister of this covenant through the preaching of the gospel. And the essential nature of this covenant is gracious in character, not meritorious. If his very message is a message of grace, then it would be a complete contradiction for him to claim that he is sufficient in and of himself because his message is about how God graciously gave himself for us and to us through a crucified Messiah. If we now relate to God under the new covenant, meaning we have been given new hearts and we have the spirit within us, and that means we can no longer be destroyed on account of our own merits or lack of merits because our salvation is ultimately rooted in the merits of another, which is Jesus Christ. And that is ultimately what leads to life. So what's the, uh, the upshot of this? Well, I imagine some of us have struggled in this pandemic because, you know, the demands of us maybe were the same, maybe the demands of us increased but our ability to meet those demands uh, maybe significantly decreased. Uh, maybe you don't feel like you're doing a great job in your work. Maybe you don't feel like you're doing a great job as a parent. Maybe you don't feel like you're doing a great job as a, as a friend. And maybe you don't feel like you're doing a great job even as a Christian believer, right? There are so many things demanded of you and you just don't feel like you have the capacity or the capability of meeting those demands. And so maybe you feel like a failure or you feel unworthy or you feel invalidated. I think the encouragement of the new covenant is this. The new covenant gives us freedom because it says at the end of the day, your validation 
is not rooted in your achievements and successes anyway. It comes from a place that is much more secure than where we oftentimes find these things. It comes from the quote-unquote success of Christ, who, by the way, achieved that success paradoxically. He achieved it through death, through shame, through loss, through defeat. And if we are a people who belong to the new covenant, we of all people should know that what we see on the surface is not necessarily the spiritual reality of things. Because sometimes wisdom looks like foolishness. Sometimes wealth looks like poverty. Sometimes strength looks like weakness. Sometimes triumph looks like defeat. And if we really understand this paradoxical nature of a Christ-formed, Christ or cross-formed, cross-shaped life, and the spirit indwelling within us, then uh, here's my one encouragement. If you feel weak, embrace it. Because in that weakness, um, I think that's where we'll find God. And when we find God, I think that's where we'll find the strength and the power that we are looking for and that we need. Let me pray. Uh, God, we, um, you know, we look around us and we look, of course, with uh, eyes of flesh and we struggle with that sometimes. And in looking through the eyes of flesh, uh, sometimes all we see uh, is a lot of uh, failure, a lot of hardship, a lot of suffering, a lot of inability. Um, and sometimes we get frustrated by that. Uh, sometimes we feel crushed by that. Sometimes we feel uh, hopeless and in despair and depressed by that. But God, uh, we, I do pray that you would help us to look for you in our weakness. Uh, I pray that you would help us to find you in our weakness. And I pray that because uh, your Holy Spirit is real and dwells within us, that we will, you would help us to experience uh, a, a power and a strength that transcends uh, us and transcends our own. And we would feel um, the sense of being um, undergirded by one who is full of power and full of glory. And even as Paul himself compares and contrasts uh, these two ministries from a lesser glory to a greater glory, uh, we ask God that you would um, protect us from settling for uh, the lesser glory and that by your spirit, you would direct us and point us to a greater glory and give us a spiritual eyes to see that sometimes this greater glory uh, is not uh, what it seems on the surface. And sometimes this greater glory uh, will look like failure and suffering and weakness. Um, but God, show us by your spirit this greater glory that we might be encouraged and strengthened and renewed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.